Hey everyone, it's your host James Olson. Before we get to the episode, I just want to share a quick reminder that Pacific Sound Radio has our very own playlist called Van City Jams. Van City Jams features bands and artists that we talk about in every new episode we drop, along with a selection of our favorite local singles. The playlist is updated every week, so head on over to Spotify and expose yourself to some new and exciting Vancouver music. That's Van City Jams only on Spotify. We now return to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Sound Radio, your go-to source for everything happening in the Vancouver music scene. I'm James Olson, and this week we are speaking with Noble Sun. Noble Sun is the musical alter ego of singer-songwriter and actor Adam Kirshner. Over the course of three records, Adam has explored themes of mental health, love, and personal growth, all while incorporating an infectious sense of humor into his lyrics and energetic live performances. Adam's latest release, Doom, was written and recorded solo in his home studio, adding a layer of intimacy and immediacy to his lyrical explorations of the anxiety of young adult life. We had a great time connecting with Adam about his childhood in Fort St. John, his approach to acting and filmmaking, and the truly underrated value of comedy and music. Let's take a listen to the first song off of the album, This Is Friends in Bed. Well, Adam, great to have you on the show. Excited to have you here. Thanks, James. Appreciate you having me, buddy. What have you been listening to lately? Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of slow pulp lately. Uh, I've I've kind of been going back and forth. I feel like uh, I've just wrote a bunch of songs, and I on the back end of writing a bunch, I'm kind of listening. I'm listening to um, to more music again now. When I'm writing, I don't like listening to stuff. Cause I feel like I'm, I get too derivative. Like I start, uh, unconsciously stealing drum beats or stealing melodies and stuff. And then I'm like, Oh shit, that kind of sounds like whoever. Uh, so right now it's been a lot more. Yeah. I've been listening to like some slow pulp, uh, MJ Lenderman. I've been kind of finding some of these like garage Rocky, uh, kind of indie bands. Uh, I always listen to a lot of Alex G uh, yeah, kind of like deconstructed indie pop music is kind of my big thing right now, yeah. That new Alex G album from last year was really good. God Save the Animals. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I think the, my favorite song on it was, was it Across the Sea. Across yeah. the Sea. Yeah. No, Across, Across the Sea is incredible. Uh, yeah, uh, Runner is an insane Runner's one. Great. I love that one. That one's like, a, it's like a new age Tom Petty tune. Yeah, that and that I I love that album too because I that that was my first introduction to Alex G. Like I'd never listened to Alex before, and it was cool going back through and then being like, "Oh man, this guy's got albums and albums and albums of like consistently really cool, innovative music." Uh, and it turns out that that uh, 
God Save the Animals was the first one he did in a proper studio. It's the first one he didn't self-engineer. So he, which is why his albums don't sound from an engineering perspective, incredible. Uh, but production's always really cool. But this is the first one he did in a proper studio and he had an engineer miking drums. And so they still got cool sounds, but it's definitely just a little more hi-fi. And yeah, it's just like a lush, amazing. It, it makes cool a difference record. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Although you can get a lot out of the deliberately lo-fi sound. Yeah. I understand that you hail from the northern BC town of Fort St. John, and I actually happen to know a number of musicians from the area, including past guests Chase the Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your experience like growing up in that community, and how did it feed your drive to make a career in the arts? Yeah, so Connor Brooks, who's the drummer for Chase the Bear, I used to babysit him. No shit. And his dad was my dad's best man. Uh, small town yeah and my dad owns a venue in fort st john called the lido and connor's grandpa founded that venue and now my dad owns it uh i went to high school with connor's sister we partied together all through high school so yeah uh (laughs) very tight with that family uh yeah how did how did northern bc influence sorry was it yeah what was it like growing up there and how did that kind of Make you determine, hey, I want to pursue a career in arts, in the arts. Yeah, really nothing about being there made me want to pursue, because I just, the funny thing about being from the North is there's no perception of the arts being a viable career in any way. Mm-hmm. You don't know anyone who's done anything. I think like my my uncle was a theater actor and he had won like some theater acting awards, but he never could, he never made money off it. He never went to film and TV. He had a friend who was in theater that moved to Vancouver to join the film and TV industry. And his claim to fame was he had like one line in a movie with like, I don't know, whoever, like Christopher Walken or something. He was a bartender and he said like, you gonna finish that? And like, that was the extent of his career. So I just had never had any idea that that could be a thing. Uh, I just kind of rejected work and I still kind of reject work. I just don't work. I don't work for people. Uh, and that's a super privileged thing to be able to say, but, uh, I just like couldn't stand it. I always, always wanted to be self-employed. So I did graphic design, did stuff like that. Um, cause up there it's all oil and gas. Um, and I wasn't going to go in 40 below with snow up to my waist and, you know, slave away for, whatever, $25 an hour. So it wasn't until I got down to Vancouver um, to record my first album. I always just made music, but I just did it because I just I just wanted girls and it seemed like a good way to like get interested in girls in the very beginning. And then I was like, oh, this is actually, uh, I like need to be doing this. I need to be writing songs. Uh, and then, you know, a couple hundred songs later, I'm down in Vancouver recording my first record. Um, I end up moving here. And the only person I know from Vancouver is a guy who used to work at a radio station in Van- in Fort St. John and they have a vacancy at their house. And so I move into their house. They're all actors that just recently graduated and are getting their first agents and booking their first jobs and doing all this stuff. And I kind of was watching their auditions and seeing what they were doing um, and kind of seeing their process. And I was like, I think, I mean, like, I love those guys. They're still, they're still my friends. We're still peers, but I was like, acting doesn't seem that hard. Um, so I just was like, I'm just going to be an actor. And, uh, so now whatever, it's been eight years, I've been voice acting and acting for eight years now. And then obviously making music and, and, and keeping up with that stuff. But, uh, yeah, th- there was really no inclination that it could be a thing. I just like, I guess yeah, I totally fell into working in the arts. 
What made you determine that acting was that straightforward? Did it just seem like something innate for you? It's just, it's just, it's just pretending. It's so, it just seems so easy. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I've just like on some level, my whole life, I've just kind of been like trying, I've been vying for people's attention my whole life uh, in one way or another. And I've always like enjoyed being on stage and performing. And when I record, I've always had a home studio set up to record my songs. And in between takes, I'd always be on the microphone just fucking around. And so voiceover became really easy. And then film and TV, there's a bit more of a learning curve. You have to understand how to work with the camera and like lighting. And it's obviously different when you're like memorizing lines and then you get on a real set for the first time and there's like a hundred people around you and there's like all the pressure of like, okay, you got to get the scene where like a lot of money's being spent. Um, but yeah, I think in general, there's the type of people that want everyone to look at them. And then there's the type of people that don't want everyone to look at them. And I've always, from the time I was born, been like, look at me, look at what I can do. And then I was like, oh, this is what actors get paid for. And I have no other transferable skills that I enjoy doing. So I better get good at this one. I better like figure this out so that I can try to make a career out of it. Because music is a very expensive hobby. It's a very expensive startup until you get to a point where you're, you're, make, you're making any money at all. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't for acting, I never could have gotten to even the point I'm at now in music, which is not far. Because, I, yeah, it, it funds everything I do. You know, it's, it is the startup. It is the, like, the primer and the engine. So, yeah, I guess I just, I just love the attention. Do you come from a big family by chance? Nope. Oh, okay. No, I'm, it wasn't one of those, like, I didn't, I wasn't competing with siblings. I wasn't like, I wasn't even really competing. I didn't really want my parents' attention that much. I like was, I, I was a skateboarder. I was really young. All my, I was like 12, 13. All my friends were like 17, 18, all had cars. So I was like, I was trying to be as funny as them, you know, like trying to like make the big kids laugh, you know, be like funny to the 20 year olds when you're like 14, 13, trying to fit in, trying to like, uh, so it was more like on that, like, you know, when, when you're that age, the older kids are so funny. They're hilarious. They're so quick and they're like, they're all, but they're also mean. And they're like, and so being able to like make those guys laugh, one is a protective mechanism because when you're funny, people like, they like you. Less likely to get beat up. You're less likely to get your ass kicked, which is a big thing in Fort St. John. Like yeah. you're always kind of on the brink of getting your ass kicked. Now, you know, all the bush parties and stuff out there, like you're always, you know, one wrong look away from making eye contact with the wrong guy at the wrong moment. And, you know, getting like some kind of homophobic slur thrown at you uh, and then being in a situation where you have to fight somebody. So humor was like, if I can make everybody laugh, if everyone finds me entertaining, no one will want to fight me. And uh, being someone who's not like just born incredibly good looking and everyone goes like, wow, that person's like, you need to adapt other skills. And so that was the one where I was like, this one seems easiest. <laughs> I better focus on this so that I have something to offer. What were some of the formative bands and artists that sparked your love for music? Yeah. So early days was like Our Lady Peace and Green Day. Uh, Dookie by Green Day was the first cassette I ever bought. Uh, I paid like $35 for it at Top 40 in the Totem Mall at Fort St. John. Uh, and listened to that thing like crazy. And my mom would make me like turn down the volume every time they said fuck but then whenever she wasn't around i would like turn it up when they said fuck i was like yeah that's the good shit uh so i was like listening to a lot of that that was really formative and then uh and then i listened to like a lot of hip-hop 
as soon as I got into skateboarding, so like from the time, I don't know, like grade seven to like grade 11, I listened to mostly, most like a lot of hip hop, a lot of like people under the stairs. And I listened to like classified, like some Canadian stuff, uh, Jurassic five, a lot of like wordplay and stuff like that. And that's how I started out. I started out writing hip hop because I couldn't play instruments. And that was the path of least resistance to getting a song done. I just wanted to write a song. Uh, and so it was like, well, I can download an instrumental off SoundCloud, uh, or off of SoundClick, which is the one we used when I was in grade eight. You download a inst free instrumental off SoundClick, and then you and your buddies smoke a bunch of weed and sit around like mumbling like, to each other for you know 30 minutes. And then when you're ready, you step up to the mic, you record your verse. Sorry, you, re you record your verse. Everyone goes through and does their verse, and then you at the end we get to listen to a song you made. That was like the coolest thing ever. And I didn't have to know how to play a guitar or piano or drums or anything. So I did that for for a spell until probably like grade 10 or 11 was the first time I had friends that played in bands. They all play, played in bands and had guitars. And I was always really jealous of them having a band. And, but I was starting to get into, uh, like old third eye blind records and, uh, incubus. And there's this band called the working title out of South Carolina. That was like my favorite band in the world. And they, they never really took off uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way, but they were my favorite band ever. I found them on MySpace randomly, and uh, yeah, they're like one of my favorite bands of all time. And I was like, oh, I want to be a singer-songwriter. Like, that's more so the angle. And so I was like, well, I have to learn how to play a guitar now. So when I was 17, I got my, my first guitar, and yeah, and then it was just a, you know, a decade of writing songs before I recorded like my first actual album. Yeah, so there's a story about that I want to ask you about. As I understand you had the opportunity to work with producer Joel Hamilton on your first EP, though you retracted your offer as you felt like the moment to work with him had not arrived yet. In hindsight, how important was it for you to take that extra time to develop as an artist? Yeah, it's incredibly important. Uh, there's this weird paradox in the beginning when you're making stuff where you need people around you that are supportive but all artists have to be delusional in the beginning of their careers because you're not good in the beginning and if everyone around you was to tell you you're not good you might quit <laughs> so you need like people that there's this funny thing where you want to be like oh that song's cool it's not cool in the way that like when I listen to a Bonnie Vera record, it's not like that cool, but it's cool that you did that. It's cool that you did that one. And then as you get better and better, eventually, hopefully you start writing songs that actually are actually good. But if I would have went and recorded those songs with Joel, I mean, I'm sure I would have got better by doing those songs in that way, but I, I wasn't ready to make a record with my hero. I, there was no there was no shot i just i wouldn't have had the confidence and even when i finally did go and record an album with him in 2018 or 20 late 2017 released 2018 i was still kind of just shitting my pants and being like this this guy is as big as anyone to me as big as paul mccartney or like anyone like i've listened to this guy's music so much and he's like my favorite songwriter i think he's incredible and then he's just like Hey man, what's going on? Like welcoming me, well, welcoming me into the house, and we're like in this cramped South Carolina studio for four days straight, twelve hours a day, just plugging through this album. I didn't have the skills or like the the wherewithal or the 
confidence to make any choices or trust in, in any of that process. So taking that extra, what would have been, I guess, three or four years uh, before I was like, oh, the, this batch of songs is a, a group of songs that is worthy of working with Joel. Um, and I love that record now. It's like such a, such a like time piece for me. Uh, yeah, I'm, it's, it's super important, I think, to wait and to know, to know when you're ready. And, you know, as you took that time to develop, you created Noble Son as your musical alter ego. And I'm curious as to how you would describe that character. Yeah, it's always a, an interesting, like originally I wanted, I wanted it as kind of a shield in a way because when you're, when you're nobody and you're writing songs, you're still writing songs about you and the people around you. And so then when your friends listen to it and the songs are just kind of about them or your girlfriend listens to it and it's about her and only 10 people are listening, it's just like a lot of pressure if there's anything actually personal in it. So by making it Noble Sun and by finding ways to be kind of vague and kind of mix and match stories or change genders in lyrics and stuff, it was a way to be able to do that while still feeling kind of anonymous when your listenership is really small. And then as the listenership grows, you can kind of get away with a bit more, I feel like, because uh, most of the people listening don't know you, don't know you personally, don't know the people in your life or where this could be necessarily being drawn from. You always run the risk. Like, I have a song on my new record called Friends in Bed, and it's just a song about getting too involved with a friend and having a bunch of sex. And, like, the person who that song is about knows that that song is about them and they i didn't tell them i i still haven't talked to them about that song to be honest but there's no way they don't know that that song is about them um so yeah i think that the noble son name in the beginning was a bit of a shield to kind of protect me while i got more comfortable in being a bit more raw and uh open with like my lyricism and now I, you know, it's not even that I really would need it that much, but it is just nice to have that separation from your name and, and, and the, you know, having a moniker. It's become weird as, as like when, when my TikTok started to take off, things got really weird because Noble Sun is better known in the world now as a voice actor than me, Adam Kirshner, even though Adam Kirshner is what my credits list as when I work and when I do film and TV, it says yeah. Adam Kirshner. But I actually had conversations with my agent being like, should I like literally just do a share or something? Or like, Prince. should I, yeah, should yeah. I be Prince? Should I actually just go like, my name is Noble Son and like totally ditch my name in all creative and like be an actor named Noble Son? Because just because the name is actually known and uh, more known, that if it comes across a, a casting director's, you know, uh, computer and they look at the MP3 of the audition, they're not going to know Adam Kirshner, but there's a better chance that they might know, oh, that's that voice actor guy or that's that musician from TikTok or whatever. So I had that conversation. In the end, I decided to keep them separate because it felt too egomaniacal or like crazy at that point. It's not something I would necessarily completely rule out, but... Um, but yeah, that's 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 what I think Noble Son kind of did for me, and now it's 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 nice. I mean, people call me Noble now, which is weird. People walk up to me and hey, hey, Noble, nice to meet you, and it's become <laughs> this like odd, odd kind of thing. But 
Yeah, it's it's nice that it, it has its own thing. So I feel like I can always just kind of go back to being Adam. I can go up on stage and be Noble Sun, and then I can like go back to being Adam. It's also just fun having a stage name or like some project name rather than for sure. Yeah. 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 And there's, there's, I mean, we have a lot of rules as to what we can be in our minds when you're like, Oh, I'm James. This is, this is what, this is the kind of clothes I wear. This is the kind of like, this is the way I talk. This Mm -hmm. is the way I hold myself. And then yeah, noble son is allowed to get away with way more stuff than, than Adam is. And you can always be like, well, that's my, that's 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 the whole that's the performance that's, yeah. that's that's lady gaga lady gaga's allowed to do whatever she wants she can wear, she can wear the meat suit uh and uh, yeah i think that especially in the beginning because it is a weird shift to make as an artist and this is one thing i think it's been tougher that i'm trying to get used to i think in canada we're very apologetic uh about our uh about our artistry sometimes and we're a little bit scared to lean in in the way that a lot of people in the states are mm-hmm. you know in in you see in brooklyn or la or like people come crazy characters and like really unique outfits and really flat crazy graphics and they really go for it music videos that really push it and i think there's some element of modesty that we have in canada that holds us back a little bit i think that we see a lot of guys in jeans and t-shirts being like hey Rube. and that's that's fine. I still do that. You know, I still wear jeans and t-shirts and all that stuff, but there's something I envy about and I'm trying to constantly push more towards. And it's not that that's even the only valuable way to present your art, but there's something really cool in that. And I think a moniker definitely helps you be able to do that and then be like, well, but I don't have to wear this like sequin, you know, jacket every day when I go to Whole Foods or whatever. Elton John isn't wearing, you know, his costume when he's no. getting his tires changed or whatever. No, yeah. exactly. Your lyrics grapple with a number of heavy subjects, especially mental health. What is Noble Sun wrestling with on the newest LP, Doom? Yeah, so the the song Doom and why it became the name of the record is as someone who's like all of us, uh, just deals with anxiety and through my twenties had like uh, more, a more generalized anxiety disorder. A lot of my, this record is mostly about the anxiety that I had in my twenties. There's a lot of stories from my twenties. I think I'm just kind of like laying to rest a lot of the stuff that happened in my twenties with this record. And I never felt like it was, I felt like there was the word anxiety didn't do justice to what, I felt, I felt that people are like, oh, I'm anxious. But what they really mean is stressed. I feel like we've kind of started conflating terms a lot. And doom was more what it felt like. It felt like I was doomed. There was this foreboding sense of like impending doom. And that was, it was way, if that's what a lot of my 20s felt like this, the, the anxiety level was so crippling for such long periods of time. And like the self-consciousness where I like, for months on end, sometimes I wouldn't go out in public. Like I would stay in my house. Uh, I was essentially like agoraphobic. Like I'd be in the basement writing songs, smoking weed and eating next to nothing. Uh, and just like living like that for such long periods of time, I was like really scared of the world. I was like scared of... I used to, if I was in a bar, I was convinced that people there were trying, like wanted to fight me or like wanted to hurt me. Uh, there was like this crazy, and I, if I was interested in a girl, I was like, had this paranoid pressure that like, 
you know, that, that she, that she didn't actually like me. She was and like, it was always this thing. And that was what doom was to me. Uh, and this record in large part, I mean, songs like dirty liar, uh, doom friends in bed. It's all kind of about like so many of these anxieties, um, that are tied into that, that greater feeling. And I, I, I wanted to create doom as like a character as more of a thing and kind of, um, crystallize that feeling for me in like record form and in hopes that I can be, okay, great. I think I captured what that thing was to me and now I can move on and kind of leave that era behind me. Yeah. If I can be personal for a sec, I had a psychedelic experience where I had this weird moment where I forgave myself for everything that I thought I did wrong in my twenties. It was quite an odd thing, but it was a, a bit of a powerful thing as well. It sounds like I suppose you might have been going through something like that with this crop of songs. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's what what was the what was the drug? Oh, mushrooms. Yes. Yeah. yeah, mushrooms. Yeah. Uh yeah. It's I feel like there's I've been thinking about this a lot and I was just listening to some stuff on it recently, but there's there's very few like rites and passages and rituals left in our culture. Uh, we're kind of getting rid of more and more of them as we get less religious and mm-hmm. we like have less structures and we want school to have less structure and we want, we're kind of, as we're getting rid of all these things, part of what gets lost, I think, is some of our rites and passages with coming of age, moving past things uh, as like marriage becomes less of a thing and, you know, parenting is like uh, every, everything's changing so much and there's things like doing mushrooms or doing, you know, ayahuasca or whatever the thing is used to have like uh okay that era is done you've done something to signify you're moving on to a new era and there's some part of me that thinks that not enough people have that and so we carry the baggage from every era of our life into every other era of our life Mm -hmm. and we don't have that period which is why like i think a lot of religions are awesome and why like judaism and being able to be like have a bat mitzvah and then be like all right i am now an adult my childhood is over and i think that we have a bunch of like 30 a bunch of child children in their 30s now and i think it's because we carry a lot of trauma from those ages and i think that there's we talk a lot about our trauma from our childhood as if it's as if it's still very present and i think it is in a lot of ways and i but i think that ways to alleviate that we used to have ways of doing that and those were rites and passages and coming of age and i think that yeah the making an album is one way to do that making a piece of work or writing something uh the the nice thing about doing you know making something is now it's released to the world and it's like not mine anymore and i think that the important part about a writer passage is that it's the culture houses it for you. If it's just you for you, it doesn't have, it's not, it's not hooked on to anything. So it doesn't actually, it's not moored to anything but yourself, which means you can wash it away. But once you moor something that you've done to the culture, it's bigger than you. It's like moved on and that thing exists there now. My first EP is there. Those things are there. And once you enter something into the cultural zeitgeist, 
it becomes its own thing. And I think that's what rites and passages always were. As I say, rites and passages for the 400th time. <laughs> but like you used to get married in front of people. Yeah. That, that was an important part of it was that people witnessed, the people, most important people in your life witnessed you saying, I'm doing this thing. And you would say to that other person, here's all the reasons why I'm doing this. And then there, that, that was the like, that was the contract. The contract was the ceremony. Uh, and now people are like, oh, we're just going to elope. And we're just, and we're not going to go on a trip. We're just going to put a down payment on a house because we're, we really need to grind. And you're like, <laughs> so we've taken all of the ritual out of it. And now it's just a transactional thing. Uh, and you know, that's fine. I think there's, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of benefits to that too. But yeah, I think this record, um, does, did definitely represent a lot of that for me and being able to be like, thanks twenties. You taught me a lot of stuff. You fucking sucked in a lot of ways. Uh, and you kind of make peace with it. I'm sure you've, like you said, you found this a similar thing when, when you were doing, uh, doing psilocybin, it's like, it takes you to a place and you're kind of like, you feel finally outside of it enough to mm -hmm. like forgive yourself and go like, yeah, you fucking tried. You can almost look at that, that young James and go like, dude, you tried, it's okay. And then you go, <sighs> yeah, and yeah, to dig a little deeper, it was, it was a beautiful experience because it was this happy, like, Hey, I forgive myself. I'm not going to like let this weigh me down anymore. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when was this? How long ago? Oh God, this was a couple of years ago. I think I might've still been in my late twenties at the time, but right. it was still like, it was very much centered on just like my experiences in university and stuff where I just, I had stuff that was just hold it like still hanging over me. And it was, it had been years since I'd been, had graduated. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wild how that works. Yeah. You've described yourself as a, quote, musician finding the world of comedy as an inverse to, say, Bo Burnham. How does comedy factor into your music? Yeah, comedy is the, I think, least respected element of music I as agree. far as creation. I absolutely agree. I think that it's people are like, you're either... Weird Al Yankovic, or you need to like be a serious artist. And there are those bands that kind of fall in the middle, like Offspring or Weezer. There's these bands that they'll make you laugh with a line, but then also sing it like Blink-182. Like they'll do Adam's song and you'll be like, holy shit, that's heavy. But then they'll, you know, the, the album is called like Take Off Your Pants and Jacket or whatever. Like those in life, there's comedy. <laughs> There's comedy always, even in the darkest moments. And this is what every TV show, if a TV show was just drama, it would suck. Like, or it would become hilarious because of how dramatic Or, it yes, is. eventually we would find our own humor in it because we need that. Like, Succession is a hilarious show because the drama is so high that there's just so much comedy in, like, how much tension is going on. And I think it's a, it's a, that was a major turning point. That was when I feel like I started to actually like my songwriting was and it was when i i mean the person who unlocked it for me was josh tillman father john misty when oh, i, I when, when i heard fear fun i was like right this album is incredible and i laugh the whole way through it doesn't make it less it doesn't it's not it's not lesser music because i'm laughing i had this idea that singer songwriter like i have to make serious music this sh this shit has to like come from my it needs to be so intense and it needs to and the second i just let myself have humor and it was i it was when i listened to an uh an interview with josh tillman and he said something to the effect of 
no matter what, in any piece of work you make, there always has to be the cosmic punchline. And the cosmic punchline is that none of this matters. And your art doesn't matter. And you're not special. But artists tend, we tend to, we need to make ourselves special. We need to take our work really seriously. And it makes sense. We're like expressing ourselves in these deep ways. But the cosmic joke is always like God or the universe or nothingness winking at you and going like, see you tonight. It's a void and nothing, none of this matters. And even in, you know, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, even the biggest artists in the world will be completely unknown. They will be nothing to the culture at, at that point. It'll have changed so much. So the average person or, you know, the person like myself, having that cosmic joke, one, alleviates a lot of pressure from needing to like be like the perfect even Shakespeare's hilarious, like, and he wrote the greatest works. You need comedy in, in, in the stuff that you do. And it's, so, a song is twice as sad. Bo Burnham's Inside was like, it, brilliant. During COVID was this crazy moment that everyone had watching that, where it was so sad, like so emotional and hilarious <laughs> but it wouldn't it wouldn't have been nearly as emotional if he wasn't so if he wasn't so funny it would have been kind of just self-indulgent it just would have been a guy sitting in a room lamenting about how bad the world is mm -hmm. and no one wants that we're all doing that in our heads at all times so the person who can put the spin on it and put the cosmic joke in there that's the thing i started striving for and if i if i write a song and there's no there's no humor in it. I know I haven't found the story yet. I haven't found the point of the song yet because that, that thing is going to be what makes it a human, a full bodied thing. It's not just like, here's a sad song. It's like, there's always that funny moment in a breakup where like something happens, you guys are having a serious conversation and someone farts or something and you're like, oh shit, oh, sorry. Uh, this is an awkward moment for that time. But like something like that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's why it's important definitely for me. What, in your opinion, is the saddest song or record you've experienced, and by contrast, the funniest song or record you have enjoyed? Well, we've talked about, I think the funniest record for me is Fear Fun, as far as, like, it's fun, and, and he's got so many lines in there that are so ridiculous, so probably Fear Fun. I mean, but there's there's other Josh Tillman records too. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a I love you, Honey Bear album. That's the first one I listened to, and just yeah. like Chateau Lobby, the title track. Um, I mean, there's some hilarious shit and holy shit, but that song also made me cry the first time I heard it. So, yeah. no, <laughs> contrast that song. Yeah, that 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 whole record is that that show. So when he did the I the Honey Bear tour, that's that's my favorite. Father John Misty show I've seen and the, he played the Orpheum and they brought the string section and everything and that was just like a whole that was a holy experience for me I've seen him six or seven times now but that I've was seen him like four times that, that that was the one for me where I was like holy I'd, I'd I'd yeah so that 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 one is and when he does it live like all of his like improv stuff in between is is so great he's definitely like obviously a huge inspiration in my live, live act and everything um but then sad records and there's there's uh, there's some Counting Crows records that are so sad to me. Counting Crows, eh? Yeah, I mean everyone knows Mr. Jones, but yeah, yeah. Um, I think may maybe those records are s more, even more sad to me because I I found them at just like I found them in like the Napster era, 
So I didn't listen to their albums as full albums. They were like kind of hodgepodges that mm. of like MP3s that I had downloaded and put on my mini disc player and I'd be like mowing the lawn. And they have some really sad songs. Uh, and, but I think they, they, they represented like my, my parents got divorced when I was like 12 and I, between 12 and 15, I think that was when I also kind of started to find my own taste in music. And so I think, you know, the music you find in those eras, it almost doesn't even matter what it is. Like it just comes to signify that era. So like those albums, when I listen to them now still like are, are like so sad to me, uh, obviously like, you know, some, there's like Bonnie Vera records that are just devastatingly sad. <laughs> uh, those are, those are probably the biggest ones that, that, that come to mind for me right away. There's, there's a, an album by, uh, Bower Birds um that's incredible and that 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 might be the one that takes the cake actually they have you heard of our birds no i haven't like they're from north carolina um a couple they got big right around the same time bonnie Vera did and they were touring on that like whole um like dirty projectors in them and they, they were kind of in like the freak folk category uh they were a couple they were touring got pretty successful uh their relationship started to break down and they split up so the band split up and then the the woman in the band one of the singers she got really sick and like life-threatening sick and he came back to see her and he said the moment he walked in and saw her laying in the bed he was like what have i been doing i just made the biggest mistake in my life like how you're all that matters to me and I remember hearing them talk about that because they got back together after that. She got better. They bought a house in the woods together. They crowdfunded and they recorded a record ab about that, about them splitting up, her getting sick, them getting back together. And that record is like incredible and framed once I knew what it was about. It was like, <laughs> it was like waterworks through most of the oh record and they're just singing to each other about it. It's a, it's an incredible, incredible album. Yeah. Wow. I gotta, I gotta check that out. Gotta be in the right headspace for it, though. It sounds yeah, like it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Sounds like it's, it's an experience. Yeah. Something that really struck me listening to Doom was the more raw, stripped down, lo-fi feel to the production, which reminded me specifically of Daniel Johnston and Neutral Milk Hotel. How does the sound of Doom complement the songs contained within? Yeah, I think I've always saved up a bunch of money and then went into a studio and had someone else engineer my records. And I love all the records I've done and I love everyone I've worked with, but it's different when you have the steering wheel and the clutch and the gas pedal, like when it's just your, your thing to control. And this record was the first time I ever did that. This was essentially what you hear on the record is what my demos would have sounded like before. I've just gotten better over the years at, at engineering uh, and producing. So I could have made it sound better than it did, but it wasn't the goal. The goal wasn't for it to sound good. Uh, like uh, um, sonically to be like, wow, that's a great sounding bass. Like that was never the, the plan. The whole record is recorded through a single 57, which is a mic less than what we're listening to uh, talking to right now the 57 is single instrument mic and for the first half of the record i didn't even have a mic stand at my house my 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 one on my desk had had fucked up so i would like set a t-shirt on my desk and then just like point the microphone towards my guitar 
and I only record using an acoustic guitar and then I would just put effects on the guitars afterwards, make them sound how I wanted them to. The whole record is me and acoustic guitar, some shakers. I played all of the synths and pianos and stuff on my Apple keyboard. Um, and most of the, the vocals that you hear, like on songs like, like, like Dirty Liar, there's a bridge where it's like, let's make up and take pictures of your body in the basement. That whole thing is that whole bridge is freestyled like i didn't write that i just freestyled that whole thing and i did it once and i think i i, I kind of got through half of it and i was like oh i kind of like that and then i did it again and that that second take is what's on the record wow and there's a lot there's a lot of uh like even with with the song doom and ones like that um a lot of the vocals you're hearing are the first time i ever uttered the lyrics like they're they're actual like improv live and then i just was like i could re-record it but i kind of i kind of just like it how it is it's kind of idiosyncratic there's like little things that maybe don't work or it's not quite on meter but i would just get a kind of a i would like the way it was and then i would just record over songs over and over and over and i would sing over it and mumble over it and i would talk and i would and then there'd be little moments that would happen where talking over myself and it just became this kind of cacophony of voices and rambling kind of that made the record feel really kind of doom like you never know if another voice is going to just start talking over here or if you know like a voice is going to be kind of humming a different tune over here but just for one bar and i kind of just started to really like how i could be like i there's a hole in the recording here i'm just going to put something there and instead of being like how do i what instrument should that be I would always just put something with my voice or I would just tap something. I would just clap my hands or do whatever. Uh, and it just became such a fast way to work where, you know, like songs like, uh, like Doom and Tom Cruise and Mirror and all those, they were written and recorded in like four to six hours. And that's just what you, that's what you get. I would start at like nine or 10 PM and the song would be done by 2 AM. Um, and a part of the reason why a lot of the vocals sound the way they do is because I have neighbors. And so I'm, ki I'm in falsetto a lot and I'm really close on the microphone and I have the volume cranked up. So it kind of gives you the perception that I'm being louder than I am, but it's actually quite quiet, a lot of it. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, Doom is definitely very lo-fi for, for the sake of it, you know, like I think leaning into what you have and being really good at it versus uh, maybe being 75% capable with equipment and a space that you can't, you don't know how to fully utilize. I think you'll always end up with a cooler result. And like for Emma forever ago by Bonnie Vare is a perfect example. That album has been remastered and remixed you know, two or three times by now. But when it first came out, it sounded awful and it still doesn't sound great. Like when you go back and listen to it, the audio quality is not great, but the songs are incredible. And that's all that, that's what cut through. So I, I kind of went, I don't need to spend another $20,000 recording a record. I have a microphone. Let's just go. And so you end up with a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really unique approach. And I mean, kind of as much as there's so many unique challenges to being a musician especially any musician that has career aspirations in this day and age one thing that is great about being a musician in the modern age is that you can write and record an entire album yourself in your room with 
just a couple programs. Absolutely. Yeah. What song off of Doom means the most to you or was your favorite to craft? Dirty Liar was probably my favorite. Dirty Liar, I think, opened up what the next record is. So I have the next record written as well. I have like 23 songs ready for the next record. And I have to whittle those down and figure out which ones are going to go on. But I feel like in every batch, I feel like song, songs kind of come in eras. And Dirty Liar came towards the end of this era of songs. And I found a permission in that song to do things sonically that I normally wouldn't do, that I wouldn't, uh, just with like the, the crazy sound effect off the top that I created, I was trying to hum a melody, it wasn't working, so I just like went to town on it with a bunch of oh, that plugins. Oh, that theremin sounding thing. Yeah, it's, it's like my, vo- it's my voice with a bunch of, st- like I just did a bunch of stuff to it and made it sound this way. And then that thing kind of pumps throughout the whole song and I, I gave lots of moments for there to be no guitar. The whole first verse, everything just drops out and it's just this like giant 404 sub going boom, boom. And underneath you have that theremin sounding thing just kind of like off in the distance. And then it goes into like kind of a country rootsy Americana bridge that builds up uh, to the big drop where the big thing comes. And like, I think that I'm always trying to find a new way to write a song so that I just don't write the same song over and over again. And that was a song that has like very distinct different parts that still feels cohesive. Um, and I just really like the, the arc of it. And I think I, I found a spot in my voice that I really liked the call and answer on the chorus with the liars was, uh, definitely taking a book out, or taking a page out of Joel Hamilton's book. Like that song is definitely very inspired. I don't know if you've looked up Joel or looked up the working title, but if you go and listen to Bone Island by the working title and listen to some of those records, I think you'll hear a lot of a lot of influence on my from you know that's influenced my songwriting. Um, but yeah, Dirty Liar, Dirty Liar for me is probably the one that that jumps out the most. That song, I'd say, really jumps out on the record, I, and I mean this in the as a compliment. It's I, to me, it's like especially the the call and answer with the liar. It's like kind of harrowing and it's a little unsettling hearing yeah. that call and answer. It's cool though. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of conflict in that song. That's like that was the you know there's the the whole time you have it's a very confronting song. Like it is, and I've there's there's a particular event in my 20s that that song is inspired by Mm. and i've written i've written dirty liar that song without those words i've written songs about this event that happened maybe like four or five songs and i would finish it and i'd be like it doesn't quite it doesn't quite capture because it was a pretty formative moment in in like my life this this kind of like betrayal that happened um and that was the first one where I was like, yeah, no, that's how I felt about it. I felt that way. I didn't feel sad about it. I felt fucking angry. And then sadness was there too. And there's moments of sadness in the song. But overwhelmingly, I just wanted to say, you are a fucking dirty liar. And the second I came up with Dirty Liar, I actually had a different song <laughs> that I originally wrote for the record. And it had a bridge on it where the liars happened. I wrote this bridge and I had that liar, liar, liar building up. And that, that song as a whole was like not great, but that bridge, I was like, oh, there's something about that. Like, it almost sounds like a cat or like an alarm going off. That's just kind of really puts you on edge. 
And so I've just from that place and having that dirty liar. So I knew a lot of the songs, Hold Your Horses, Gunshy. I was like, I want to write a song called Gunshy. I want to write a song called Hold Your Horses. I want to write a song called Dirty Liar. I had the name of the song. And then I was like, okay, let's see what happens now. Uh, so that's, yeah, that, that one definitely has its own, its own world sonically and, and thematically. Each album you've dropped so far has its own character, which reminds me a bit of the arc of the trilogy of records released by Nick Drake. I assume probably unintentionally. Um, where do you think you're going to take the sound of the next Noble Sun release? Yeah, that's been the big conversation right now. And I'm kind of waiting to... I recorded this, the whole, all these, these 23 next songs. I recorded them the same way I recorded Doom. So if I was going to release a record like Doom the record would be done. Uh, but I don't want to release Doom 2. I don't want it to be production-wise to be Doom 2. All the, the, the three albums I've released so far all have very different sonic footprints. And the next one, I also, I want it to be, it's, it live in its very own world. Uh, it's definitely, I think the next record's going to be a lot more singable. Uh, you heard a couple of the songs uh, on at, at the show. I recently, the show, I, I recently yeah. played at Rickshaw with with, with Melt, and uh, we had a song called "Giddy Up" that we open with. That's another song where I was like, I have a note in my phone that says "Song Called Giddy Up," where I was just like, I want to write a song called "Giddy Up." I think that's sick, and uh, yeah. And then I, I wrote a song called "Girls," which I play second or third last. Uh, really high energy a bit more on like the indie pop kind of sphere, but still has like kind of a bit of bite and edge. Um, I've never had a record with electric guitar on it. I think the next record might have electric guitar and might go back to real drums, whereas Doom is all programmed drums. Uh, it might be more of like a, an indie an indie rock record, but still yet to be determined. I'm still kind of in that stage where I don't want to determine it too much. I want to like figure out where I want to define the space and the tools and then whatever happens, happens. That's what we did on the first record, Joint Violence. Went to South Carolina, walked into the room. It's like, well, what do we have? We have these three bass. We have this Casio synth bass. We have this tiny little piano with an American flag on the back of it. We have these like little elements. Well, this is what the record is because this is what we have. And then we have a banjo. So there's banjo on, on Joy and Violence. But I'm in South Carolina. So like, yeah, of course there's going to be some banjo on this show. Or someone's got a banjo. Someone's got a banjo. Yeah. Uh, so we got dueling banjos on a couple songs and stuff. But they're like, they the, the way that they meld in is uh, still like, you know, you, you find a way to make that work. So I'm trying to figure out, am I going to go off into the woods by myself? Am I going to do the Justin Vernon thing? Or am I going to go into a studio and record up there? Uh, I've been talking to Jordan Clausen about going in collaborating with him or working with David Vertesi again uh, and or going to Toronto and working with there's a couple producers out there that I've been talking to um, so yeah still still to be determined but uh, but yeah it's going to be it's going to be a departure but I think it'll just be it'll be even more fun I think than than this record Doom is your first release distributed by a label what are your thoughts on being signed and the opportunity to connect to a broader audience it must feel validating to a certain degree it's super validating uh to have like when i had a song called elvis just a single that i released in 2022 
that caught some steam off of my TikTok and that got me a bunch of emails from labels. And that was the first time that that had ever happened where anyone was just reached out to me for my music. And so I had a couple labels in LA and a couple of labels in New York reach out that just wanted to set up meetings and, and talk about things. And, and they wanted to hear if I had any demos and whatever. Um, and I ended up signing with uh, this indie label called Anti-Fragile in New York. And uh, yeah, I think the, the funny thing about labels now is labels are very different than when, when we were young. And I think that there's a different perception that the public have and that maybe I had as well as to what a label can, can do for you. And there's this kind of idea like, oh, like you've signed to a label, like you did it. There's a kind of a bit of that feeling. Sometimes I feel like, cause it's such a goal for so many people. And it's nice to feel like you're not going it alone, especially because Noble Sun is a solo project. It is lonely. Like your successes and your failures are just your, yours alone. Uh, so having a label, and like I have Scott, my manager at Feldman, who's great and we can have meetings and talk about things and that's awesome. But having a label is cool. It's cool to know you have somebody there uh, kind of pitching you and helping with those things. But at the same time, still just it's still on you. Still, no one's going to care more about your career than you. No one's going to have a better idea of how to make your thing work than you because no one else knows what no one else knows what you imagine this podcast being no one knows better than you and no one knows what will make you happy doing it and what will bring that out so there's a funny kind of you know two sides to the coin of being like it's cool to be on a label it's cool to have support but at the same time you can get complacent you can get lazy because you're kind of expecting someone else to do it for you it still comes down to you and i think that it was a great experience, and I'm grateful uh, to get to do the, this record with Anti-Fragile. And I'm also really excited to do the next record by myself and go in and go independent again. Uh, and I have, you know, just it's been fun cooking up ideas about how to promote my music and how to. Every, it's it's a the ultimate question right now, and I think a lot of artists are struggling to figure out how to promote your music right now. How how do we do it and I guess I have to be funny. I guess I have to make funny TikToks. I guess I need to like try to get the alg the algorithm, the algorithm. And it's a it's the uh, this gift to us. This like anyone can go viral now became this crazy curse where all of us now are also our marketing teams. And I'm I'm been having a lot of fun figuring out alternative ways to approach marketing and try and get my music out there. So yeah, um, it's been really cool being on the label. As a live performer, you interact with the audience a lot and are very high energy, and I can attest that to that personally, having recently seen you open for Melt at the Rickshaw. You're probably one of the most energetic performers I've seen with an acoustic guitar. So especially as a you know, folky singer-songwriter type, how important is it for you to keep the crowd thoroughly engaged throughout a show? Yeah, a live show is warfare. I don't think enough artists... Uh I, there's nothing that kills me more than than musicians just playing songs and just standing there. Just standing there. It's like I can listen to the record at home. I can listen, and even artists that are perfect, 
Like, it's cool that you're doing it perfect, but at least if you're going to just play it perfect, like, give me an alternate version. Give me some strings. Give me a variation on the bridge that has a solo. And, like, live performance is entertainment. It's not just music. To me, that's how I like to consume it, so that's the way I like to produce it. And in my mind, if a crowd is bored, it's because it's not a conversation. And if you're just playing at a crowd, they have no problem picking up their phone and texting and doing whatever. But when I play, I stare out at the crowd and I look at each person. I look in their eyes because I want them to know, like, I am playing for you. And then once they understand that there's a contract going on, uh, I find crowds tend to participate more. And when crowds participate more, they enjoy it more and I enjoy it more. And it's not their responsibility to make that happen. It's my responsibility as the person on stage. So when I get on stage, generally before, I used to be way worse. I used to get like really irritable before. I'd be like, I couldn't talk to people and shit. I'd be really short because it was like, I just had to like stay in this zone. And that happens less now. But I now I get up and I just like, all people want is for you to not bullshit them. No, like when people get up and they're like, how's everybody doing Vancouver? Ha, Vancouver. And they have this fucking voice. And like, I always, the second if an artist I like comes out and they do that, this happened with Lord Huron. I love Lord Huron. I love their records. And I went and saw them live. And at one point he was playing his guitar and he was kind of, he had this big floppy hat on and he was tossing his head back like this. And I could tell he was trying to toss his hat off and it wasn't working. And I was like, this moment feels so manufactured. And then when it finally came off and he whipped his hair and the crowd kind of did a little cheer, I was like, that, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel good to me. And it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. And then I, and once I saw that, I just saw all the little like cracks in the performance. And I was like, I don't want to see every bit of planning you've done to do this thing because that just tells me that you also tossed your hat off in Portland and you also tossed your hat off in Seattle. And that just means that I'm not getting my own show. I'm getting the show. And that sucks. I want things to fuck up. I want, because the you, you think about the, the, the shows I remember the most in my life, I remember the moments where something went wrong and then it was live. And you had to see those performers in real time, look at each other and go, uh, and they had to figure it out. And normally they laugh and they look at the crowd and the crowd laughs. And now in that moment, we're all on the inside of the inside joke. No one else outside of that venue isn't on that inside joke in that moment in that song. And now it's like, it's like when you're on a date and the ice breaks, like that's the moment when you're like, oh, well, here we are. At least we're on the same page. We're not like kind of, you know, circling each other. And I just try to get to that moment as quickly as I can when I'm live. And it's not hard to do because I feel like the bar is pretty fucking low, especially when they see a white guy with an acoustic guitar. Most people go like, here we go. You know, you're going to sing about his feelings. Here comes a G chord, you know, like, and so the the sooner I can get up there and just kind of put them on their heels and go like, what the fuck was that? Um, It's, and it's just more fun for me. I just, you can't, you can't do anything wrong if you're being vulnerable on stage. That's the, 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 the craziest part about it. If you're trying to protect yourself on stage, there's a million ways things can go wrong. And then you can get stuck and go, oh. Anyways, uh, sorry, here's, um, here's the next song. And you see artists and it just breaks my heart. And I'm like, all you need to do is say your string broke. And then, and we'll all go like, oh, 
or whatever. And so I feel like, yeah, the, the sprint from the moment I get on stage to be like, how do I crack that open? And it's usually with humor because people aren't expecting you to talk. People come to me after shows and they're like, oh, that show was funny and I liked the music. Or they go like, because they're just so not used to seeing that. And that was what Father John Missy did for me when I saw Josh Tillman for the first time. I was like, oh, right. He's allowed to talk in between and not like lecture me about plastic bottles or like, you know, climate change or whatever. And it's like, it's not that that stuff isn't important, but who are you to fucking lecture me? Just because you have a microphone, you get to lecture me? Fuck you. No, you're here to entertain me. I paid, I paid $50 to be entertained and hear music. And the, the, the entertainment doesn't stop when the song stops. So, like, I get it, you have to tune. But you could talk to us, or you can, someone else can do something, or you can have visuals or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's, a, it's like a big thing. It's a big thing for me. It's really important, I think. People like Bo Burnham, I think that we, as performers, musicians, can learn a lot from stand-up comedians. They're not allowed to have five minutes off. The crowd will let them know. Like, oh, yeah. you, you can't have you can, you can't have a flat joke. You can't like. There's no if a TV show gets bland for five minutes, you change the channel. Like you change the channel, you find something else on Netflix. <laughs> uh, like we don't have, but for some reason we feel privileged to have this. Like we, you're captive. You have to listen to this whole thing. I'm not above like if I'm playing an acoustic song. I, usually I play one or two acoustic that are like more mellow. I enjoy violence at the at the last show. I cut that song short all the time if I feel like that's enough of that. The crowd like has had enough of that. I, they don't owe me their silence to hear my feelings. Not at all. If they're really feeling it and we're all going there together, great. But in the same way as like us having a conversation right now or when you're having a conversation with someone else, we get cues off of each other. And if you're listening to an audience, they're telling you exactly what they want at all times. If you're closing your eyes or just staring at the back wall, you have no idea what they want. But I love stopping a song and just staring at the crowd and then watching them one by one go like, what's going on? And then they all look up and look up like, why did you stop? <laughs> and then they kind of go like, what the fuck is he doing? And then you go, okay. And then you start the song again and they go like, what the fuck was that? And then you see a couple people start laughing and then you'd be like, oh, I just, I just I missed you guys. And then they kind of, they, they have a laugh. And then again, you've just had a little moment. The ice is broken a little bit more. Now they want to come up and say hi afterwards and say, that was funny. I had that, whatever, call somebody out in the crowd who was being an asshole in the back. And now we're all on the same page. The elephant in the room has been called out. Um, yeah, live performing is, is becoming my favorite part of the whole thing. And I think that, uh, that, that humor and, and those elements are, are like super important. Yeah. So besides Father John Misty and Bo Burnham, who we've talked about quite a bit, what live performers do you particularly admire and what draws you to how they conduct themselves in front of an audience? Uh, besides those guys, Mac, Mac DeMarco. Mac DeMarco is a guy who's not precious at all. No, I've heard his live shows are wild. Like They're insane. night and day in terms of the energy levels compared to some of his records. Yeah, they, they go nuts. And they're all like incredibly talented players. And they'll like drop in and play like whatever, like a Led Zeppelin song. And then they'll play like Len Steal Your Sunshine. Like they, and again, it's because there's, there's, you're allowed to be sad. You're allowed to have fun. It's allowed to be funny. Um, I worked at the Vogue for a few years and I worked a bunch of his shows. And because he's from Vancouver, he's from Edmonton and then moved to Vancouver and then he moved to Montreal. But when 
he has tons of family here in Vancouver. So when he plays Vancouver, he puts three couches on the back of the stage and all of his friends and family sit behind him on stage at the Vogue. And so he has like 40 people behind him on stage that are all just like drinking. And, you know, like, and he'll, he'll sit down and his band will just play and he'll like hang out and with his family for a little bit. And like, you really feel like you're just in his basement at a house party. And everyone there's having the best time singing all the words he's, but he, he doesn't take himself seriously. I think that's the biggest, maybe the biggest thing is, is, you know, same with Josh. I mean, Josh Tillman, he's kind of, a, he's, he's kind of a, he's, it's kind of ironic because he also takes himself very seriously. Josh Tillman is like a very, in a lot of ways, a very serious man. And he's like, uh, I think he values his intelligence a lot and, uh, his ability to craft words and, uh, I don't think Mac is on on that level quite as much, but Mac's records are sad. Mac's like a his his records kill me. Like anytime he sings about his dad or like it's heartbreaking. And his songs, his records are so tender. So many of them. Uh, and then yeah, he gets on stage and he just like shreds them or, or does whatever. Uh, I love that. And you never know what you're gonna get. He might just put down the guitar. You might. T- toss up a shirt and go crowd surf he might just light up a cigarette and lay on his back and have a fan play the solo instead every per- person who goes to a mac demarco show gets their own mac demarco show and i think that as a performer that's what you have to aim for every single time they know the songs you're not going to give them a new song and if they do that's its own thing here we're, we're playing a new song yeah but seattle also got the new song so why why is this our show uh and every time i've seen mac he he's given me his my own show I mean, it's what you want as a as an audience member. You don't want just like, oh, this is just it's the same routine. Because then you're basically just watching a concert movie or something. Yeah, you might as well be at home on YouTube yeah. watching it. We've also talked about how you are a working voice and live actor. I'm curious as to how you feel those artistic gifts complement one another. Yeah, I talk about them like I have like a tripod, like I have like voice acting, film and TV, and I have music, and they all kind of prop me up. And at any point, if one start, starts to feel a little like less sturdy, I can always lean on the other one and I can kind of move around creatively. I think that that's huge. And it's a thing that I have a lot of friends that are just actors and I see them just struggle when no auditions are coming in or they're not booking. And it's just so painful because acting is a, a, a creative field where someone needs to give you permission to do your craft. No one gave us permission to be here tonight, except for obviously the people who run this space, but you've set this <laughs> up, it, but, yeah. <laughs> but you could have done it somewhere else. You could have done it in your car. You didn't have to like audition to be able to do a podcast. No. And I don't have to audition to record a song or to, you know, um, to, to play my guitar. I don't have to audition to write a song. Uh, so acting is tough for that because I don't think of myself as an actor. I don't have to worry about that. I, and it, it helps me a lot. I end up booking more because I don't care if I book. So I don't care if that casting director doesn't like my choices. I don't care if that director doesn't, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I think I really like, what I think is good and what I do well. I'm going to do that. And same with in music. It's like, if people aren't going to like that, that's fine. Cause I, I can go over to voiceover and in voiceover, I can do what I like. And in general, you're always going to have people that don't like what you've done, whether or not you like it or not. So if you, you know, we never know what other people are going to like. So I think the biggest thing I've taken away from all of them is that you have to be your tastemaker. You have to be your director. You have to be, you know, the, you have to run the show with this podcast. You have to know what you want it to be. No one else is going to take it there for you. And same with all these crafts with, 
what what your production is going to sound like, what producers you use, what what drummers you use, what lyrics you choose, tempos, like all the right down to the minuscule stuff that they need to be your choices for you because even if you do everything exactly how you love, there's going to be people who hate it. So if you do, if you do a bunch of stuff you don't like, and then still a bunch of people hate it, now you don't like it and they don't like it. So like, you better like your podcast and you better like, you know, your music and you better like your choices as an actor. Um, because in the end, like your work is your life. That's going to be, that's going to be the summation of your existence. So, um, at the end of my life, I don't want to look back and be like, yeah, everyone else liked what I did. I want to be able to be like, I liked the choices I made. I like that record. And Doom is my favorite record I've recorded because my fingerprints are all over it. And it's, it's the record I wanted to hear. It's the record that like at 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. all those nights, I was finding the sounds I wanted. And now I, I get to listen to it. And now other people do. And some people like it and some people don't. So... All of the music videos you've released to date feature an intriguing mix of humor and dark surrealism. One of my favorites is the clip for Gunshy, which really gets meta with it being a music video about casting a film project. Where does the inspiration for these projects come from? And I'm also curious as to like what filmmakers you're into. Yeah. Making music videos is so fun. <laughs> it's kind of this it's like this one area where I get to meld like being an actor and I also write uh, and like direct or do whatever uh, things on that side. And so it's like this fun area where, again, I get to have like the full creative control and put together these teams. Uh, and the ideas, I make most of my music videos with a, a friend of mine, Casey Lum. We like co-direct a bunch of stuff. Um, and we've done a few of the music videos now, including Gunshy. And we made we make our music videos the same way that i recorded doom which is why i think this is just my best the process i'm best uh fitted for we get together with no idea we don't even necessarily know what song we're gonna do we just get together and we're like gonna have coffee and we just start bullshitting and then one of us will be like i saw this you know this this woman yesterday and she was standing on the corner and blah, blah, blah happened. And then that'll trigger like an idea. And we know that we're there to come up with an idea, but we're not really, it's not at the front of our minds. And then someone will be like, and with Gunshy, it was like, we need to have a casting for the music video. Cause we should cast someone for this. Okay. Yeah, we should do that. Uh, and we should, you know, and then it became like, well, what if, because we, we're going to have to get a space to do that. What if we shot the music video in the casting space? So maybe, maybe we can come up with a concept that uses a casting space because then we can do the casting and we could shoot it in the same space. Maybe that might be. And then we're like, well, hold on. What if the music video is just the casting for the music video? Oh, right. So this is the, this is, we're casting the gunshy music video, but that is the music video. So we're like, right. So then how does this work with, and we had like all these Bibles drawn out where we had like three circles and the first, <laughs> the first circle is like, is the music video. And in that music video, no one can see the cameras, but then on the outside circle is the casting. And in the casting, you can see the casting camera, but you can't see the cinema cameras. And then on the outside of that is the documentary film camera and everyone can see the documentary film camera 
in all the worlds. And so we had to, <laughs> and it's confusing if you can't have the diagram. Oh my if, God. If, if this was a visual podcast, you could put up, you could put up my little notepad that has the three circles, but essentially we needed to, do, to brief all these actors and the actors, I just told them I wanted them to come in an audition. And I told them we were filming the auditions. So all of them are improving. There's no written dialogue in the whole thing. The whole thing is just improv. And we had no plan for the day. We had no idea what was going to happen. We knew that we had five hours in the casting studio. Um, the only person who was in on it was uh, my, the Ryla, the woman who was playing my, my girlfriend, and my friend Byron, who was playing the director. Ah, and so okay. th those were the only two that were in on what was happening. And we knew that me and the director were going to butt heads creatively. We knew that was going to be kind of an arc. And that at some point it was going to be, you know, the, the arc with myself and Ryla was we're trying to cast someone to play me in the music video to be with Ryla. But I am so full of myself that I can't imagine anyone having the skill to play me. And I'm so jealous that I don't want to see anyone with my girlfriend. So no one's ever going to be able to, to get the role. Um, and yeah, the, once we got in there, <laughs> the reactions of the actors and I had, I, the, I had all my friends that are actors come in and these are people that have auditioned and been in big projects, like leading people on TV shows tell me that was one of the most nerve, nerve wracking auditions I've ever had in my life. Like, because people would go in and suddenly there'd be screaming and there'd be all this shit going on. And then 10 minutes later, that person would walk out like white as a ghost be like, I don't know what just happened. Uh, and then the next person's like, oh shit. Like, and then they have to go in and deliver this monologue and I'm standing up and I'm doing all this stuff to them. And so it just became, uh, and everyone had to be in on it. The sound person had to be in on it because the camera might be on them, the, the, everyone's shooting. So there, it was essentially like a six hour long improv with everyone there, including the crew for the entire time. There was no timeouts because at any point a camera could turn at you because we had the behind the scenes crew there the whole time. Um, long tangent to say, uh, I think that uh, the live performance element still needs to be there. You're not allowed to like have a boring moment. Uh, there still needs to be story first. There still needs to be vulnerability. There still needs to be humor. I think that no matter what type of art you're creating, you need to have those elements present. For me, those are the elements I cook with. And so I bring that to every voiceover, film and TV, music, all of those elements are going to be present. Um, and if they're not, then something's going to be missing. There's going to be a hole. What filmmakers are you into? Because I know, like, you know, certain ideas come from certain spots. Like, I'm a David Lynch guy. So yeah. if I'm like, oh, I want to do something weird, I usually think, like, oh, I saw that in a David Lynch movie or whatever. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, Ruben Ostland, uh, he's a director from Sweden. He did. Uh, most recently Triangle of Sadness, but he's also done The Square uh, and Force Majeure, and his short films are incredible too. He's my favorite. Um, yeah, I think that he's just making the most interesting films in the world to me right now. And listening to his interviews and his creative process, I, I like, I'm super, con I feel super connected to his, his way of creating. Uh, he gets most of his ins inspiration from YouTube. Um, he has this story. It's like one of my favorite stories, uh, about what he, this video he found on YouTube and you can still find it there and I'm going to mess up some details to it. But essentially there was the CNN clip of, uh, I think the name was Muhammad, but there was, uh, 
at CNN, there was a guy who was from like the World Bank or one of these big institutions that was coming to speak to CNN about uh, about the, the the global market. And this guy was his name was Muhammad, I think. And uh, they're waiting for him. Muhammad was late. A taxi driver shows up, and he's there to pick up someone else that was just on the program. And the one of the producers comes over and says, "Sorry, who are you?" He says, "I'm Muhammad." This driver's name was also Muhammad. And so they whisk this driver. Oh, yes, this way, this way. And the guy's like, oh, oh, okay. He doesn't really know what's going on. Next thing you know, he's getting makeup put on. But this guy doesn't have really strong English. So he's kind of like, uh, he doesn't really know. He's, uh, they're putting makeup on him. And then they're like, and you're live. And suddenly this taxi driver is live on live TV. Oh my God. With a TV anchor. And they introduce him as a person he's not uh, from the World Bank or whatever institution it was, and they ask him a question, you know, this and this and this has been going on. What are your thoughts on the current market? And you see this moment, this is the moment Ruben, Ruben Ostalan talks about, he says, you see this moment where that guy decides, he makes a decision. He's in this state, and then he makes a decision. And he goes, well, you know, I think with the markets the way they are right now, and he just pretends to be that Muhammad. <laughs> That's amazing. And that is Ruben Ostalin said, I'll never make a scene as good as that. That is, that's what every scene and everything you do should have that level of stakes. You want to watch someone contend with a situation, an impossible situation, and have to make a decision. And I, I think that that needs to exist in creative tension in our, in our songs, our films. And I think that that's that's the rub and i ruben osterland is a master of it when you watch his films every scene you're just like your guts are churning but you're laughing but you're groaning and you're like oh my god but it's so brilliant and you're like how did he think of this uh and i think that that's that's kind of what i'm always trying to aspire to and you know he's probably my biggest inspiration well now i know i really 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 need to see triangle of sadness because that's been on my list for a while but Sounds like I have a few other films I need to see of his. This, the Square is top, top, top for me. Uh, I like Triangle Sinus, but but The Square is my maybe my favorite film of all time. So, oh wow, well, I'm always uh, always looking for new people, and you know, it just I love films by just anyone in the world. Like yeah. I, like for example, like Korean film as well. Yeah, it's like it's a whole other different world. Yeah, and, and incredible, very yeah. rewarding too. What's uh, next for Noble Son? Next, uh, we, well, I'm uh, going to be playing a show. I'm opening for Dan Mangan at the Vogue in December. Uh, that's going to be like a more stripped down show. That's the only show on the books right now. I think we're going to play our own headline show at Green Auto in Vancouver, maybe at the end of November Ooh. before. We might try to get out one more show before the end of the year with this band set up and then going to be building a new live rig. Uh, and trying to, yeah, get some of these new songs. We're going to put together like a 75-minute set. Right now we have like 45, 50 minutes of, of stuff. And potentially looking at adding a fourth member, fourth band, uh, band member to uh, bring some of these, these other songs, which are potentially going to be a little bit bigger, maybe get a lead guitar player. Um, and that also plays synth and stuff. Um, but yeah, the next thing is going to be like right now, waiting to see if some grants come through things like that and and then get the new record done that's the big thing we're going to play a couple shows but get the new record done so that 
I can keep rolling out songs. I have a couple singles that I could be releasing right now, but I'm trying to figure out if they're going to be, they're kind of, they came just after doom, but kind of before this record materialized. And so they, they might end up being just singles on their own. Uh, so yeah, figure out some singles, figure out how I'm, where I'm going to do this next record. Uh, and yeah, I'm making a music video for Hold Your Horses uh, with Sterling LaRose, who just won the Prism Prize for Best Music Video in Canada. He was nominated for a Juno this year. Oh, wow. For a Snotty Nose Res Kids uh, music video. He's incredible. We we got an RBC grant to, to do this one, <clears throat> and it's going to be insane. It's like I'm like a, I'm a mad scientist on an island turning uh, a- animals into humans, and we're doing all these like actual like prosthetic makeup so there's going to be all these people that are like half animals uh, and the animals on this island revolt against me and uh it's going to be insane have you ever seen the movie sorry to bother you i have seen sorry to bother you yeah i just thought of that instantly (laughs) yeah yeah that yeah so there's there's uh there's a there's a book from like the 1800s that inspired Sterling to to get the idea. This is also the first music video I'll ever be a part of that I'm not directing. Mm. So it's going to be fully in the hands of somebody else. So that'll be exciting. We're we're doing that. We're recording. We're filming that in uh, ten days. So yeah, sounds like it's also inspired by the Island of Doctor Moreau by H. That's Wells. that's the yeah. one. That's the one. Yeah, that's that's the one he pulled from. Well, yeah. and I hope that the production is uh, infinitely less troubled than the '90s movie that they they did a movie up. in the '90s. They did, and oh. I would absolutely recommend the documentary about it because the production was an absolute shit show. Like the original director got fired halfway through, and apparently he was like living in the jungle and he was fucking around with the production while they were still shooting it. And it was one of Marlon Brando's <laughs> last movies, and hit him. He was just fighting oh. with Phil, Val Kilmer the whole time. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Val Val Kilmer talks about that in his documentary Val. Yeah. Oh, but you I should did, watch the I documentary about the movie because it's nuts. Oh my God! What's, yeah. Okay, I'll have to get that up to get that information. Yeah. Um, I'll look it up and I'll I'll get because I got to send that to Sterling too before yeah. before we film because I think he'd love that. Yeah, because the the guy who was supposed to like do it and it was like his passion project and yeah. it was like really heartbreaking for him that he got fired. This guy named Richard Stanley. He made a really great movie that came out a couple of years ago called uh, The Color Out of Space, which is inspired by an H.P. Lovecraft short story, um, and uh, stars Nicolas Cage and it's like a horror movie but yeah he's a really Sweet. interesting guy but yeah I'll, I'll get you the information for that documentary for sure what local bands or artists would you recommend we check out or bring on the show for a future episode felix uh, is he, he goes by holy felix uh ah, yeah holy Fe- felix i've heard of him yeah. holy felix yeah uh he's i think the most underrated musician in town he's incredible yeah i we connected over covid just like I can't even remember how I found him some, somehow on Instagram. And I listened to his, his EP, he had just released an album and it was like recorded in his, in his house. And I was like, I love this dude's stuff right away. And then he, he just, he's in the process of signing to 604 right now. Uh, but I've heard he just recorded an album with, with Kevy and the guys from fake shark uh, producing and his new album is unlike anything in the Canadian music scene right now. That's good. And it's heavy as fuck and it's mean. Hell yeah. And it's like, it reminds me of like my, my favorite nine inch nails records, my favorite Marilyn Manson records. It's like 
seething and angry and he's like but then like the musicianship is incredible and the song the riffs his guitar playing uh i and he's like just such a insightful and uh hilarious dude and he's 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 gone through a lot he's played in a bunch of bands he's played in cover bands he's done it all he's an incredible live performer uh yeah felix roberts holy felix he's my he's he'd be the top of my list number one anyone else uh yeah who else would be good uh, have you talked to dan yet uh no i haven't i really should yeah you should talk to dan dan's yeah. dan's like a, a really he's, he's a sweetheart he's he's like a really inspiring dude he's kind of taken me under his wing in the last couple of years and we've helped each other a lot and I, i've been like helping him make with his tiktoks and helping him with social media stuff and he's been kind of showing me the ropes and uh giving me lots of insight into like industry stuff he's he's a wealth of information and just like one of the most loving kind guys you'll ever meet sweet guy to have on yeah i mean those 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 would be the two off the top of my head that are like just two of the guys that are dearest to me. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, and also, uh, you know, Dan Magnan is one of the bigger names just in the Canadian music ecosystem. So yeah, that'd be that'd be really awesome to have him on the show. It's funny looking through some of the collaborators that have worked on your previous releases. I've had Jordan Classen and David Rutesi also on the show as well. Oh, yeah, so. sweet. But I probably at some point have at least one of those two guys back. I've yeah. had a few repeat guests. Well, David's record's coming out, so you're going to have to have... Did you just have David on? Uh, no, I had him on, I think it was still during quarantine. So I haven't met him in person yet, but I'd okay. like to. Yeah, so he's got his new record coming out as well. He's, yeah. just, he's got a couple singles, so I'm sure him and Jordan are heading on, on tour. Yeah, I think right I saw here. something on Instagram about Yeah, that. so they're, they're going to be playing the Hollywood at the end of October, I think. Uh, but yeah, he's going to be dropping that new record. He's going to be looking for content, baby. So you can, you can get him on here. Yeah, keep that in mind. Well, thanks again, Adam. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me, James. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, James Olson. Before we close this episode off with one more song by our featured guest, I just want to let you know that you can keep up with what we're up to on Facebook and Instagram at Pacific Sound Radio and on our website at pacificsoundradio.com. If you like the show, you can give us a five-star rating and a positive review on your podcast platform of choice that lets you leave reviews. This is Gun Chai. I think that I'm getting lost. That's true. It's not I keep scrolling.